We're all set then. Okay, let's turn to the Word of God this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 16, fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 16. And uh, just read a few verses, but one in particular, uh, reading from verse 9, verse 9 to verse 12, Deuteronomy chapter 16. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And in particular, this verse, verse 12. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Sometimes the Bible seems to contradict itself. I say seems, because in reality, of course, it never does. For example, for the most part, uh, scriptures encourage us not to look back but to look forward. Jesus said, the man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind and looking forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the mark. And yet here, in the verse that we just read, Moses is saying to God's people, and you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. So in this instance, he's encouraging them to look back. Now looking back sometimes is a good thing to do. It depends why you're looking back and what you're looking back at. That's very important. Moses well understood human nature. He had seen a previous generation who had just come out of Egypt. And within days, literally within days of coming out of Egypt, they were complaining to Moses. And in effect, were complaining at God to Moses. And they were complaining about the journey. They were complaining about the food. They were complaining about lack of water. Uh, they were just complaining continually and forgetting very quickly how the taskmasters in Egypt uh, were beaten, beating them and whipping them. But within days they had forgotten about that and all they were doing was griping and complaining. So he tells them, remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Now, for those whom Moses was addressing, uh, there are a couple of reasons uh, why he said this, and it was good for them to look back. And also for us today, there are some reasons, we'll see in a moment, why it's good for us to look back also. First of all, it would help them 
get their problems into perspective. Now, their present discomfort in doing the will of God, and it was uncomfortable for a while, but their present discomfort in doing the will of God was nothing in comparison to what they had gone through in Egypt. Had they forgotten the lash of the whip? Had they forgotten the bricks that had to be made without straw? Had they forgotten how the Egyptians had turned against them and were treating them cruelly and wickedly? Had they forgotten that so quickly? Yes, absolutely they had. And now God was with them. And God was giving them a pillar of fire by night. In that cold desert air, God gave them a pillar of fire by night. And to shelter them from the scorching noonday sun, he gave them a pillar of cloud by day. He gave them also manna to eat. Uh, Samus called it angel's food, bread from heaven. He gave them water out of a flinty rock to drink. He provided for them their very clothes and their shoes would not wear out in the wilderness. And yet in spite of all of that, they grumbled and they groaned. The Apostle Paul, when this world threw everything at him that it possibly could, he weighed it all up and he says, This light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. If you think it's tough sometimes being in the will of God, let me tell you, it's a lot tougher being out of the will of God. I would rather live in the kingdom of God as live in Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world in the Bible very often shown as a type of the world. Far better living in the kingdom, isn't it? And even if things are difficult at times in the will of God for us to go through, it's far, far, far better than being a slave in Egypt. Seeing where you come from can bring a better perspective to where you're going to. Secondly, would remind them of who it was that brought them out of Egypt. You see, they were slaves, they weren't citizens. And that meant in Egypt, they had no rights at this particular time. Remember Joseph and all his brethren were dead and the Pharaoh who rose, rose up who knew not Joseph and made life really difficult for them. And so they had no rights, they had no privileges, they had no status, they had no power. They were simply slaves owned and treated badly in Egypt. Only God himself could set them free from Egypt. And in fact, until Moses came, who was an 80-year-old man, until Moses showed up, they had no leader. They had no one, nobody to deliver them, to rescue them. Only God could do that. And he did that through Moses. Romans 6 and 6 says about us, that we were slaves to sin. In John 8, 34, Jesus said that if we commit sin, we are slaves to sin. Whatever sin you continually commit, you're a slave to it. That's what Jesus said. Romans 7, 14, Paul said, I am carnal, sold under 
sin. The truth is, from the very moment we were born, we were born in sin, shaping in iniquity, the Bible tells us. From the very moment we were born, we were slaves to this world. We were slaves to sin. And only God's Son could set us free. Aren't you glad for that? Only God's Son could deliver us from this world. In Romans chapter 6, and I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. In Romans chapter 6, reading from verse 15, Paul said, So since God's grace has set us free from the law, does this mean that we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that whatever you choose to obey becomes your master? You can choose sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God and receive his approval. Thank God. Once you were slaves of sin, but now you have obeyed with all your heart the new teaching God has given you. Now you're free from sin, your old master, and you have become slaves to your new master, righteousness. I speak this way using the illustration of slaves and masters because it is easy to understand. Before you let yourselves be slaves Sorry, let me just find this. Before you let yourselves be slaves of impurity and lawlessness, now you must choose to be slaves of righteousness so that you will become holy. In those days when you were slaves of sin, you weren't concerned with doing what was right and what was the result. It was not good, since now you're ashamed of the things that you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you're free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul said that we were once slaves to sin and to this world. But through what Christ has done for us at Calvary, we're no longer slaves to sin. Our propensity is not to sin. Our propensity is for righteousness. Yes, we can sin, and yes, we do sin, but that's not the thrust of our lives. That's not the desire of our lives anymore. We want to live in righteousness and be righteous and do righteous. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Therefore, whom the Son makes free, Jesus said, is free Indeed, we've all seen, I'm sure, on television at some point, maybe in the History Channel, uh, we've seen how that whenever uh, Germany fell during the last war, at the end of it, whenever they were crushed, whenever Hitler's Nazism was destroyed, and whenever those liberators marched through the capital cities and people were out lining the streets and they were waving and they were cheering their Liberators because they were higher powers that broke the enemy's yoke over them and set them free. And God is the highest power. And he was the one through his son that broke the yoke that was on us and set us free that we're no longer slaves but we're sons. The only thing we're a slave to is righteousness. We're a slave to doing the right thing unto Christ. For by grace have you been saved 
through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, so that none of us can boast. The only thing we can boast in is Christ and his righteousness and his deliverance. Hallelujah. And so whenever we look back and see ourselves what we were as a slave in Egypt, as it were, spiritually speaking, then we realize that only one could have set us free. No man could have done it. No organization could have done it. No institution could have done it. Only Christ can set a man or a woman free from sin. Thirdly, it would remind them to be considerate and compassionate to others. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, just back a little bit, a little bit. Verse 7, if there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying the seventh year, the year of release is at hand. Every seventh year, people are released of their debts. So he said, beware. The seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Thinking, well, I've given something now in the seventh year, that he'll be free from that. He won't have to give it back. So he says, beware of that. And he shall cry out, against the, cry out to the Lord against you, and it become a sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all of your works and all which you have put your hand. For the poor will never cease in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to the poor, and to the needy in your land. And it goes on down there to verse 15. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this thing today. So in other words... Because you remember you were a slave in Egypt, then when you're out of Egypt, you're in the promised land, and the blessing of God is in your life, don't forget those who are poor. Don't forget those who are struggling in this life. And when you can, bless them and do them good. You see, oftentimes people, when they get up a bit in the world, and they begin to go forward a bit. They forget to look over their shoulder and see where they came from. I told you before the old saying in the part of the country where I came from was never forget the bowl you were baked in. And lots of people do that. And God is warning these people not to do that. To remember those who are struggling. Remember those who are poor. Remember those who are not as blessed as you are at this time and be a blessing to them. I think that oftentimes as Christians, this is a theory of mine. I could be wrong, but I'll put it forward for your thoughts. Whenever you become a Christian, at the beginning, you have hardly any Christian friends 
and you have still lots of non-Christian friends. And it's very easy at that point, because you're just a new Christian, it's very easy at that point to understand where your non-Christian friends are coming from because just recently you were one of them. And you thought like them, and you acted like them, and you had an attitude like them. But now you're changed. Now you're saved. Now you're redeemed. Now you're sanctified. But as you go on in your Christian life, what you'll find is that you'll have more Christian friends than non-Christian friends. And the longer you go on in your Christian life, it's easy to forget what you were like as a non-Christian. And we can, can become very, very judgmental in that respect that we forget that we were like that because we're so far removed from it. And you look at others and you wonder, well, how could they do that? How could they think that? How could they say that? How could they live like that? And maybe the fact is, maybe that's exactly what we did. But it's so far back in our past now that it's foggy trying to remember. We don't even want to remember it. We don't even want to think about it. But it's good sometimes to remember that we too were a slave in Egypt. We too were bound by the sins of this world. Only the fact that Christ has set us free, we would still be there. In fact, we would probably be worse than what we were then. <laughs> Does that make sense to you? It's only a theory of mine, but I believe there's truth in it. And so we need to be careful. Now, in, in John chapter 3, we should try to be a little bit more understanding of those who are non-believers. John chapter 3, listen to what Jesus said. Well, you know verse 16 very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But read on. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why did he not send his Son in to condemn them? Well, read on. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Christ didn't come to this world to condemn sinners. They're already condemned. He came to save them. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, and his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and Again, I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation just to make it a little bit easier for you to understand. Apostle Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. There's a scandal has arisen in this church. Sexual immorality. An awful, awful scandal in this fledgling church 
They were mighty in gifts. They were highly charismatic. But there was a sin issue that they were not dealing with. And Paul was angry about it. And he writes to them and tells them to deal with it. So, let's see. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something so evil that even the pagans don't do it. I am told that you have a man in your church who is living in sin with his father's wife. So that might have been a stepmother or his own mother. And you are proud of yourselves. Why aren't you mourning and sorrow and shame? Why haven't you removed this man from your fellowship? Even though I am not there with you in person, I am with you in spirit concerning the one who has done this. I have already passed judgment. You know, I should do a teaching sometimes on judgment because there's such a misunderstanding today about judgment. You know, judge not that you be not judged. We all know that verse. But that sometimes is entirely taken out of context and it's taken to the extreme that not even God means what you think that it means. So I should do a thing about judgment. Because it's got the stage where we're scared to say anything about anybody, about anything in the church. So Paul here brings a bit of balance. I've already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus. You're to call a meeting of the church, and I will be there in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus will be with you as you meet. Then you must cast out, then cast this man out of the church and into Satan's hands so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved when the Lord returns. Boy, that's pretty drastic, isn't it? Eh? So I'm sure I'd like to go to that church. Well, this is the mighty apostle Paul. This is the man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, so we better listen to what he says. This is very strong. But it was an insidious thing, something that had to be dealt with and wasn't being dealt with. And it was causing great sin in the church. Paul says, I've judged it. It shouldn't be happening, and I'm not going to let it continue to happen. I have judged this, he says. So he says, put that guy out. Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Don't bother with him. Don't even pray for him. Let the devil have a go at him. And then maybe he'll come to his senses. Basically, that's what he's saying. That's strong, isn't it? How terrible that you should boast about your spirituality and you let this sort of thing go on. Don't you realize that even if one person is allowed to go on sinning, soon all will be affected. Remove this wicked person from among you so that you can stay pure. Christ over Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us, so let's celebrate the festival, not by eating the old bread of wickedness and evil, but by eating the new bread of purity and truth. When I wrote to you before, I told you, now listen, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin. So he's differentiating between believers and unbelievers. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or who are greedy or who are swindlers or idol worshippers. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. What I meant was that you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a Christian yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but certainly it is your job to judge those inside the church who are sinning in these ways. 
God will judge those on the outside. But as the scripture says, you must remove the evil person from among you. Ah. So there are things in the church that the church can judge. Now how you do that and your motive for doing that is a whole other teaching, which some of these Sundays we'll get into. But those outside, he says, I can't judge them. God will judge them. I try to get them saved. I'll try to win the lost. I'll try to reach out to them. And there's a difference, isn't there? But it's so easy for us who have been saved a long time to forget what we were like and have a bit of mercy and a bit of understanding and say, only by the grace of God I would still be there to this day. But God saved me and he freed me. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And so from time to time, it's good to look back and remember. Not that we want to go back, but just to look back and remember. And then, fourthly and finally, it would help them appreciate how far they had come. You see, in Leviticus 23... Moses gave them instructions when they would come into their land, into the promised land. He gave them instructions about certain feasts that they were to hold, to commemorate. Uh, And one of them was uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And part of that feast was that they were to take branches of the trees and palm trees and so forth. And they were to make a little booth in the side of their house, a little lean-to, we would say. That would be roughly made. Nothing fancy in it. Just leaves, branches. And they would live in that for seven days to remind them how they lived when they were slaves in Egypt. The Passover feast, there was a meal in that and part of that meal they had to eat bitter herbs to remind them what it was like when they were slaves in Egypt. And to this day, there are many practicing Jews during the Feast of Tabernacles, will make a little booth and live in it. Who during the Feast of Passover will eat those bitter herbs to remind them, their nation, what God had delivered them from. And so it helps them appreciate how far they had come. Do you ever think how far you have come since you had been a slave in Egypt and God delivered you? Do you ever think of far you've come? For those of you who has ever done long haul flights, I despise them now. When I was younger, it was exciting, it was thrilling. Now I just hate it. Just have to get to A to B, but if I could just do away with that bit in the middle, it would be wonderful. But you have to go through it. And part of the journey back, Sally and I did, we had three flights back in the Philippines. One of the flights was 13 and a half hours from where Grace's hometown is, Kuala Lumpur, to Heathrow was 13 and a half hours. I think we're in a headwind that was blowing against us. Now it was a beautiful plane. The last word, latest A380-800, 
got a big television screen, as big as nearly as the one you have in your living room. Seemed like that, and I was stuck in the front seat in front of you. You've got all your controls. There must be 100 movies on there. There's all kinds of music, there's entertainment. That's just to keep you sane. <coughs> and even though the seats were reasonable, and but 13 and a half hours, stuck in that one seat, let me tell you, it's torture. And when you can't sleep, and I can't, I've never slept in a plane in my life. And I tried everything. I put the blanket over my head and everything. I tried everything. Couldn't do it. But on that screen, as well as all your regular entertainment, you can see your flight plan. And so you change the channel, and there is your flight plan. And at the start, when you buckle in, and the captain comes on and says, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is your captain speaking, blah, blah, blah. Your journey tonight will be 13 and a half hours, and your heart sinks. And you think, Lord, when it came, it was only 11 and a half What's going on here? But it comes a slightly different way. Thirteen and a half hours. And of course, you take off and you're thinking, thirteen and a half hours. And you look at that map and you see, here I am here, and that's where I've got to go there. And of course, then you get maze and you get titbits during the night and uh, you get breakfast in the morning and you all kind of you go to the loo two or three or four or ten times, whatever times you need to go. And, and, and that kind of breaks it up a little bit. And then you make the mistake, you know, you think, I wonder how long I've been flying. I wonder where we are now. And you switch that thing on. And you're thinking, I have another nine hours to go. I'm over the Bay of Bengal and nine hours to go. And you, and you switch it off quickly and you try to put that out of your mind. And then it goes on and goes on. And so the best bit about the flight and the worst bit about the flight is the same thing. It's that jolly map. The worst bit is when you switch it on at the start and you see you have thousands and thousands of kilometers to travel in 13 half. That's the worst bit. The best bit is when the captain finally comes on and says, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, blah, 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 blah. We're coming into land very shortly, so put your seats back up and put your trays away and then your feet, put them under your feet. We're coming into land very shortly. And you switch that map on and there's only maybe about 100 kilometers to go. You know, and there's only, what, 15 minutes or whatever it is to take you there, and you oh, that's, that's a great feeling when that happens. And then you look back at how far you've come. You know, you've come over the South China Sea and Vietnam and Cambodia, and then you Afghanistan and Iraq and all those Middle East, and then you come into... Eastern Europe, all over Asia, and Eastern Europe, and Western Europe, and now you're coming into Heathrow, and you look back and see how far you've come. <sighs> you're not half glad. You're not half glad you're not just starting all over again, but you're almost ready to land. And when you look back at your Christian experience, particularly those of us who can look back a long way, on Monday, tomorrow, 17th of February, 1973 is when I gave my heart to Christ, 41 years ago. And I was thinking about this last night. I was sitting in an easy chair reading these scriptures and I was thinking, Lord, and I look back 41 years. And I looked at my life from then. And I'm thinking, Lord, if I was still a slave in Egypt, where would my life be today? 
Would he even be alive today? Who knows? And I thought of Sally and I married. You know, I told you umpteen times we met at school. We were 15. We were married at 19. Now, you young ones, shut your ears to that. You have to be much older now to get married. That's law. The government passed that. Did you not know that? Right. And we're still married to this day. And we look back. We weren't the only ones that met in school and got married. There's loads of them. But as far as we know, we're the only couple still together. That's the grace of God. Apart from I love each other, but that's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. And I look back over those 41 years, and you can look back over your how many years and see the hand of God in your life and think, where would I be today? What would I be doing today if it wasn't for the Lord? It wasn't for the fact he rescued me out of Egypt. I was a slave, but now I'm a slave to righteousness. What a difference it makes to know the Lord. Amen? Just to know that you're saved, that your name's in the book of life, and that your whole life has just totally changed and the curve is upwards and onwards with him to that day whenever we see him face to face. Oh yes, there's difficult times in between and you, things you have to face. I, I think of some of the stuff that we went through. I think of this church, some of the stuff that we went through here at the beginning. I don't know how anybody stayed. I don't know how I stayed, never mind anybody else. But here we are. <laughs> here we are. Looking back, the Lord has been with us every step of the way. There was testings here and testings there and testings yonder, but you came through the test and the Lord lifted you another level higher than you were before. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's marvelous. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And thank God you're a slave no more in Egypt. <laughs> but there's lots of people who still are. We have to believe that understanding of where they are and why they're like that and try to reach them for Christ and show them the Savior and let them know that what happened to us can happen to them and that their lives can change like our lives changed. And we just stand in the grace of God, don't we? There's no, we have no merit. We, there's nothing we did. There's nothing special or different about us than anybody else other than the grace of God saved us and cleansed us and gave us a whole new life. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. God is good. Kenneth is going to come. Or there he is there. Kenneth is going to come. He's going to lead us in communion.